So who's your king? The United States is a constitutional republic with an elected president and a bicameral legislature, so we don't have a reigning monarch, but plenty of places in the world still do. Queen Elizabeth II reigns over the British Commonwealth, which includes United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, eight Caribbean island nations, two in the Pacific, and Belize. There are other European monarchs, most of whom, like Elizabeth, are largely figureheads with little actual governing power. These would include King Philippe of Belgium, Queen Margrethe II of Denmark, King Harold V of Norway, King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands, Philippe VI of Spain, Carl XVI Gustav of Sweden. All of these are currently reigning hereditary monarchs. The various states of the Persian Gulf basically all have monarchies with varying degrees of authority. Monarchies are also popular in much of Asia. Japan, Thailand, and Malaysia all have kings or emperors. And of course, lest we forget, Pope Francis is the reigning monarch of the Vatican city-state, which, as you may know, is less than two-tenths of a square mile in area. Pretty small. In most places today, these monarchies are vestiges of powers that have since been given over to more democratic institutions. In other places, like Saudi Arabia, the royal family continues to rule in ways that consolidate their power and violate human rights and the rule of law. Thailand's king, Vajira Longkorn, has been married and divorced four times, and back in July took a royal consort, well, he still actually had a wife, only to strip her of all of her titles and ranks three months later which tells you that being king does not necessarily make your life any less complicated. For most of us, I suspect, kings and monarchs seem antiquated, or maybe even a little dangerous. We would never want to invest lifelong, unlimited power in a single person or one office. We understand how badly power can corrupt. We see that every day. For many years, the sort of king most people saw on this feast day, I suspect, seemed like the sort of triumphalistic king with lots of talk of thrones and dominions and majesty and power. And you can even see that in today's first reading from Second Samuel where David is anointed the king of Israel. David was not the first of Israel's kings, but he was considered the greatest of them. At first, God told the prophets in ancient Israel that his people didn't need a king, but the people insisted. Why? Well, because all of the nations around them had kings, and they thought it would make them safer, more secure. The prophets tried to warn them that kings are dangerous and that they would be taxed and oppressed and drafted into their king's service. And all of that did come to pass. 
For all his strength and military power, David, as king, did some really terrible things. And Israel's subsequent kings would be progressively worse until the nation itself was divided and finally conquered. Throughout the scriptures, having a king is, generally speaking, kind of a disaster for God's people. So why do we celebrate today Christ the King? The answer is in today's gospel. Christ the King isn't the triumphalistic king or the king of armies and wars or the king who rules by capricious commands. He's the king on the cross. He's the king who taught that to be the ruler over all is to be the servant of all. And in this gospel, he's offering the ultimate service, laying down his life for his sins instead of saving himself. You may have noticed in this gospel reading that three different times, whether it was from the rulers, the soldiers, or those crucified with him, Jesus was asked, why don't you save yourself? And that's an important question. He didn't save himself because he was busy saving us. All three of the Gospels that the church uses for this feast day function in this way. In year A, which we'll get next year, we get the judgment scene from Matthew 25, where the king separates the sheep from the goats. The ones welcomed into heaven are the ones who recognized their king in the hungry and the thirsty and the refugees and those in prison. In year B, which we'll get two years from now, Jesus stands before Pilate and proclaims that his kingdom is not of this world. These gospels shatter our image of the king who lives in the castle exercising absolute authority over his subjects. And what it leaves is the king who sacrifices and who lives in the poor and the rejected, whose highest value is the truth and who lays down his life for us. So that doesn't leave much room for triumphalism or imperialism, or even for authority as we understand it. The Feast of Christ the King ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable. Not just because we're uncomfortable with the metaphor of a king, but because we are still too comfortable with our own power and with our place in the hierarchies of our world. Part of our sinfulness is that as much as we like to say that we might dislike the idea of kingship, there's always that temptation to think, well, it might be okay if I was king. But the Christ of these Gospels challenges that temptation. We are asked to follow the king that we see in the poor and the rejected the criminal who stands before Pilate for threatening threatening the status quo, and the king who died on the cross. This is the last Sunday of the church's year, and next week we begin the season of Advent. And that time of preparation asks us to get ready for the coming of our king, 
both the victorious Christ who comes at the end of time and the helpless infant born into our world 2,000 years ago. But we really begin that preparation today with the realization that power and glory as this world understands them are corrupt and temporary things. We follow the king, the one whose reign begins with service, compassion, and justice. That is Christ, our king.